So today we're continuing on in this uh, series of sermons. It's called Open Invitation. It's been a uh, journey through the Gospel of Luke. We're still early on in it. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 in just a moment. We are going to be today talking about one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. Certainly one of the most well-known stories in the New Testament. It is a story that we teach our children about from a very, very, very young age. It is one of the few miracles of Jesus that we find in every single one of the four Gospels. It's actually somewhat rare to have an appearance of a miracle story in every book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but this one makes it into every single Gospel story. And because of what we're going to be reading about today, I decided to, to, to title the sermon Mission Impossible because the disciples are going to be given an impossible mission to achieve in Luke chapter 9 today. But of course, you can't read the title Mission Impossible and not immediately think of what? Yeah, I mean, something like this. The Mission Impossible movie series. If you're unfamiliar with it, it is a series of movies centering on Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise. He's like a super spy guy, and it's uh, some really great action movies. I looked it up to grab. This screen grab is from the very first one, um, when he's iconically suspended in that secure room. And kids, that's a computer. That's how big computers used to be. So he's trying to get some sort of files off of the computers. Would you believe that this movie came out in 1996? Yeah, it's been a minute since then. I was, uh, let's see, that would have been uh, the year before I graduated high school. So it's been a while since this iconic movie to begin the series was released. And listen, after early service, my dad came up to me. He's like, you know, that was a television series before it was a movie. And I'm like, yes, dad, I know. So I make sure I tell all of you, yes, I know it was a television series first. But after the release of this movie in 96, movies have come out every four or five-ish years since then, although there's one coming this summer, and then part two of this summer's movie will be next summer, so they're going to be pretty close back-to-back. If you're familiar with the series, you know that not only is the general mission impossible, but the situations into which they get themselves trying to accomplish the mission are also impossible, to the point that I, I had realized, getting ready for this, that I hadn't seen most of the newer versions of the movie. So my wife and I decided we're going to watch one of the newer ones. So it was, I think, Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol. And while we watched that movie together, my wife said, every five to seven minutes, come on. Well, at one point, she even said, you can quote me, this is redunculous, she said, because every time they would get into something, it's like, there's no way they can get out of this. And then they get out of it, of course. Mission impossible. So today we're going to be looking at an impossible mission given to the disciples. If you have a Bible and want to follow along with me, we'll be in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done, and then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. And he replied 
you give them something to eat. And they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. And about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Mission impossible. All right, kids, if you're in grades one through six and you're still stuck here and you want to come up, I have something to share with you. So if you are brave enough to come up front, I have something in my magic bag here that you might be interested in. So I'll just wait up here for you. Don't peek, though. Don't peek. Okay, how many are there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, twelve, thirty, five. Yeah, I, I may be misestimated. That's okay. Okay, so I brought in my magic bag here enough food for us to share and eat together. So I brought a bagel. Yeah, and a bag of goldfish, bread and fish, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and share this one bagel among all of us. This is probably enough, right? So here we go. I'm going to give you some. There we go. Perfect. You can have a piece, one for you. If you don't need a bagel, that's fine. You can just wave me off. No, no bagel? Okay, great. No bagel. Boy, okay. Anybody? Yeah, come on. Everybody, this is a... This is a fresh bagel. Oh, do you, that's a really big... Yeah, I didn't bring any cream cheese with me. Oh, you decided you did want one. Okay. Would you like a little slice of bagel? Absolutely. Did I miss anybody? Oh, yeah, there's lots in here. we go. One for you. One, yep, great. Would you like some bagel? Yeah, you do. Bagel for you? Perfect. All right. Some for you. You're a growing boy. They'll give you a big piece of bagel. There we go. You also. You guys look like sportsmen. We'll make sure you get enough bagel to eat. There we go. Perfect. A little slice for you. Great. Some for you. Yeah, perfect. I'm almost out. This is perfect. One for you and you. And then there's a piece for me. So go ahead and eat your bagel. And then I've got my bag of goldfish here. Let's do a few goldfish per person. So if you want goldfish, let me know. Great. Goldfish. You all want goldfish, even though you didn't all want a bagel. I don't see why. There you go. Great. Great. You want goldfish? Of course you do. Goldfish for you? Yeah. Great. For you? All right. Move through here. Goldfish? Of course. You don't want bagels, but you want goldfish. No? No goldfish? Did you already get some? Okay, you already ate them all. All right, here we go. Goldfish. Goldfish. Nope, nope. Pass on the goldfish. There you go. Goldfish, gentlemen. Yeah, how, the, how was the bagel? Good. Plain bagel, nothing better. Oh, that goldfish landed in your hair. Sorry about that. Yeah, you can eat that extra one. It hit the floor, but we just swept, so it's all clean and good. Great. All right. You can eat your goldfish. That's fine. I'm assuming... 
you don't have goldfish. Where are your goldfish? Did you eat them already? You didn't get any? There you go. So we're all full, right? You guys are filled up? That was enough food for all of you? Yeah? Of course not. Not nearly enough food, right? Not nearly enough food. Because one bagel and one bag of small bag of goldfish isn't nearly enough for way more children than I anticipated would be up here today. So how did Jesus take five loaves and two fish and feed so many people? In the story, it said there were 5,000 men. If we assume that there was just one woman or child for each man, so 5,000 more, how many people would that be? 10 to 15,000 people. How did Jesus do that? Well, it's because God in Jesus is wiser and stronger and more powerful than we could ever imagine and can do amazing things that we think are impossible. Sort of like this. Now, I'm not nearly as strong and powerful as Jesus is, but I want to show you something. So here's what we're going to do. I am going to cut this piece of paper with these scissors in such a way that I'm going to put it, put one of you through the piece of paper. How's that sound? Does it sound impossible? No? You, can you do it? Yeah, I didn't think so. So just, so just watch. You know how to, sh- so, seems impossible, but I'm going to show you how it's done. So I'm going to get my nifty scissors. While I cut this, let's, let's do a quiz. How many kinds of bread can you guys name? A loaf of bread, that's bread. White bread. Rye bread. Italian bread. Any, anyone else? Fresh bread, that's another good kind. A bagel, that's another kind of bread. Anybody else? Stale bread, gross. A croissant, yeah. What about kind of fish? You guys know what kind of, how many kinds of fish there are? Tuna. Salmon, tilapia. Ooh, I'm going to eat at your house later. All right, I'm almost done. I know it's pretty. It's one of my favorite crafts ever. I just have to make sure that I do it right or else I'm going to be really sad. So I, that's a great question. I did bring an extra piece of paper in case I messed this one up. I know. Yeah, it was wise thinking. And I appreciate that you have so much doubt in me that you immediately wanted to know. If I brought extra paper with me. So, somebody is going to go through this piece of paper because now, with the way that I cut it, it can be this large. So, Gene, you want to stand up? Let's put you through this paper. Ready? And you can hop out of it. There you go. Impossible becomes possible. Now, this is just a little trick that I did, but because... Jesus is so much more powerful and amazing than I am. He was able to take five loaves of bread, two fish, and do something amazing with it. I know, right? I don't even know. If I've blown your mind, mission accomplished, we can dismiss and go home. No? Okay. You guys can... Wait, don't go back to your seats yet. I have something else for you because I brought you this. In case you maybe get bored, I brought you a fun thing to do. I think I'll have enough. I guess we'll find out. So take one of these and pass the next one on to your neighbor until they all get around. So what this, this is, is a way to follow along with what I'm going to be preaching on. 
It's like a follow-along quiz type thing. There are pens in the chairs where you're sitting with the people that you came here with. And so if you keep track of everything and answer all the questions that are on there and come back after the service, I've got something else that I can give you that's sort of a fun surprise so that you don't go home empty-handed. How's that sound? Sound good? Does everybody have one? Did I print enough copies? It's going to be close. I think we do, though. Does everybody have one? Anybody not have one? We're good? Okay, if you want to head back to your seats, grab a pen, stay with us, and when you complete it, come back at the end when we're done today, and I have something else for you in my magic bag. Yes, your, your parents can help you if they want to. If they want to make you do it on your own, then you make sure you do it on your own. It's not cheating, though, if they want to help. All right, so here we go, back into the story. At the beginning of the passage, we read that the apostles returned, which we need to ask them, what did they return from? Well, if you're with us last week, you know Jesus sent them out to do the mission that he had called them to. He sent them to the villages around and the towns to do what? To preach the good news of the kingdom and to heal people from their physical ailments and from demonic oppression. So they are now returning from that. And what is the first thing Jesus does with them upon their return? He invites them to rest. I love that that detail's in there. Because I'm imagining these disciples come back very excited with lots of stories about, you wouldn't believe what happened when I preached about the kingdom in this household or when I healed this person in the midst of the town square. They probably just have so much excitement built up. But Jesus insists upon returning from the busyness of ministry and work that they take some time to rest. The being with Jesus that led to this point is not going to be neglected, even though now the ministry with and for Jesus has begun. We are designed as human beings to rest. And a lot of times we do not like that. We do not like our limitedness, the fact that we have to rest. But what's true is continual work will often lead to one of two things, either exhaustion or an addiction, an unhealthy addiction, to activity and accomplishment. And sometimes both. Sometimes we have an addiction to activity and accomplishment and we chase it so much that then we get exhaustion thrown in as well. I'm reading a book by a woman named Ruth Haley Barton, and this is what she says about work. It's a book about uh, developing healthy discipleship rhythms and spiritual disciplines. She says this, A decade or so ago when our society was on the cusp of many technological breakthroughs that we now take for granted, there was much editorializing about the hope that we could look forward to four-day work weeks and still get the same amount done. That has not happened. In fact, the drivenness of our pace of life has become even more pronounced. Rather than working five, nine to five days a week, we find that technology has made it more difficult to have any boundaries around our working life. Since we can access voicemail, email, and internet from anywhere, many of us work six or seven days a week. Technology was supposed to help us lead saner lives, but instead it has led us to expect more of ourselves while also compromising our ability to be present to ourselves, to God, and to each other. Pretty amazing critique, right? Here's what's even more amazing. She wrote these words in the year 
2006. So when she's talking about the decade before with all those technological innovations, what year was she thinking about? 1996. Even more, I don't, I don't think it's gotten better, personally, because since to, uh, in 2006, five years before Zoom conference calls were even a thing, Twitter barely had been launched, Facebook was still available only to students. I don't think things have gotten better, probably worse. Are we letting Jesus lead us to remote places in order to rest? It doesn't have to be physically remote, although I do recommend that from time to time. Sometimes it's just being socially remote from the world for just a short time to allow yourself to rest in Jesus, as these disciples were called to. So they try and get away, but it's an unsuccessful attempt. You read in the story that the crowds followed along, and Jesus, seeing the crowds, reacts how? Does he shake his fist? Oh, you've ruined my plans again. No, just like the micro level we saw recently in his ministry, the interruption is once again welcome. By micro level, I mean it wasn't long ago that we saw Jesus on the way to heal a young girl, and he stopped because there is a older woman grabbing at the edge of his cloak because she needs healed, and that interruption is welcomed in his ministry. Now it's not a stealthy single person, it's a crowd of thousands that are interrupting what Jesus is trying to get done with his disciples, and yet he still welcomes the interruption. If for no one else, this is on the screen for me, I am still trying to train myself to view interruptions as opportunities for God to do something he wants to do in and through my life. I still tend to be interrupted and to react generally with frustration or exasperation first. And that's something that I'm still trying to learn myself. But Jesus welcomes the crowd. And what does he do? The same thing he sent his disciples to do. He preaches the good news of the kingdom to them, and he brings healing to those who need healing. But eventually it gets late in the day, and in verse 12, there's this practical concern that's brought up. The disciples say, hey, we need to send these people away from here. They need to go to the nearby places where they can get food and where they can get rest or lodging of some kind. Now, because we know the rest of the story, we read this and we go, oh, Such a lack of faith, those guys. They don't know what's going to happen. In fact, I would argue they're actually trying to be helpful in this time. Because they're in a remote place, in a wilderness. And if they don't start heading home soon, they'll be traveling in the darkness. And if you're traveling in first century Palestine in the darkness from a remote area, it's at very least challenging, if not dangerous. I think they're trying to be helpful to get people to a place where they can find food. Now, this is not what we would do today. We have many different options. If we are with a crowd and the crowd is hungry, we've got so many delivery options. We can order a pizza and have it delivered. Or we can take advantage of the multitude of delivery apps between DoorDash and Uber Eats and probably a dozen more that I don't even know exist. We have so many options to have food brought to us. Speaking of which, did you know in Texas they are experimenting with self-driving delivery cars for pizza? That's what this is. This guy's not getting into a car to drive it. He's walking up, and there's a hatch that opens. I imagine it goes like this. Makes that sound. And he puts the pizza in, and then they punch in coordinates, and this thing self-drives to the, the curb where it's supposed to be delivering, sends a text message to the recipient. The recipient comes out, puts a pin code in, and and you take your pizza out, and you go back into your home. What a world we live in where robots are delivering us 
pizzas. They did not have options like that in first century Palestine. They're not calling Uber Eats or DoorDash. The disciples are like, we need to get these people to find food somewhere because it's not coming here. They're trying to be helpful. And how does Jesus respond? He says, well, actually, I want you to give them something to eat. This is the impossible mission. This is one of the times I wish I could inhabit the biblical story because I would have loved to have seen Jesus' face when he tells them, hey, yeah, they're hungry. You guys should feed them. I just picture him with like this sort of smirk, like a smile, like I can't wait to see where this goes. Yeah, you guys should take care of it. Indeed, they're hungry. I imagine there's this very awkward silence after Jesus is like, yeah, you should feed them. And the disciples are mumbling to each other. Did you, do we hear it? Do we hear him right? Does he say we should, we, what? And then eventually it just leads to some form of exasperation where they kind of go, I think that's what he said, that we should feed these people, but I have no idea how that is supposed to happen. I think at least two things are true from this command of Jesus, that they should be the ones to feed these hungry people. First of all, the basic physical needs of people matter to Jesus. We read about this in James chapter 2. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Jesus and his disciples have already spent time here and in the surrounding villages meeting spiritual needs, meeting medical needs, meeting oppressive needs. They have met all kinds of needs, and yet Jesus in this moment draws their attention to say their day-to-day basic needs of humanity also matter, and you, my followers, are going to participate in helping to bring relief to the needs that they have. What's also true, I think, of this statement where Jesus says, you feed them, is that we are prone to a diminished definition of what is possible. I don't blame the disciples for their doubts. I would have been doing the same thing. If I were one of them standing next to Jesus and he looks out at 15, 12, 10,000 people and goes, yeah, we should feed them. What? What are you talking about? I would have been right there in the middle of the doubt and the struggle. But it's because I, like those disciples, have a diminished definition of what is possible when Matthew 19, Jesus says to someone else, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, yes, I always preach to you that context is important. And Matthew 19 is not about feeding the 5,000. If you know your scripture, you know this is the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. But I would argue I'm not stealing it out of context when Jesus is talking about being able to, God can do all things because I would imagine if you're a disciple and you're standing there with crowds around you and you're being told to give them all food, you might rather try crawling through the needle, the eye of a needle, instead of trying to feed 10,000 people food. Are we listening when God wants to do impossible God-sized things in us and through us? I don't know. Do we have a diminished definition of what possible is? Are we attentive to when God whispers in our ears and says, I want you to do something crazy? I don't know. Because I still think God wants to do crazy things. Are we attentive 
to when he speaks. The disciples hear him out. He says, you give them something to eat. And what do they come back with? Well, here's what we have. We have five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, this is where I give the disciples credit. Instead of rejecting this idea as impossible outright, saying, no, forget it. This, this is not feasible. They say, I have two relatively impossible solutions. One, we use five loaves of bread and two fish to feed thousands of people. Or we go to the surrounding villages and towns, buy enough food with money that we don't have. And this part I realized this week, carry it all back somehow. Twelve guys are going to carry back enough food after they've purchased it with money they don't have and carry it all the way back to feed these thousands of people. But at least they say, here is what we have. It would have taken 200 days of an average person's wages, seven months of hard labor to feed this many people. And yet the disciples humbly and honestly say, look, this is all we've got. But that's not the same as rejecting God outright. It leaves the door cracked open for God to work in and with the limited resources that you might have. And this is one of my favorite parts of the story. Because what little they had was offered with open hands. It felt impossibly small. And yet what they offered was still used by Jesus in this miracle. This is Jesus. He could have called down manna from heaven immediately and just settled right among them. He could have had a, a, a crop, a harvest, just burst up from the ground in order to feed these people. But he doesn't. Instead, he takes the little that they have and says, I can work with this. He takes the minuscule things offered with an open hand. And he says, I can work with this. But before he distributes it, what does he do with the loaves and the fish? We're told that he gives thanks for them before sending them out to be distributed. I think this is an overlooked and underrated detail of the story. Gratitude, giving thanks. When we humbly and honestly recognize our limited abilities and resources, yet we offer them with open hands combined with gratitude and dependence on God, I think that's when amazing and kind of crazy things can happen. I read this week, study after study connects the idea of gratitude with contentment. The more gratitude we practice, the more we tell ourselves, I think I have enough. Gratitude and contentment are strongly linked. One of my favorite things I read this week was a study at the University of Pennsylvania where they had some of the participants write and then personally hand-deliver letters of gratitude to people that they felt had never been properly thanked for their kindness. And the people that did that, they had a huge increase in the happiness and contentment they felt in their own lives because they were acting in gratitude first. So Jesus gives thanks. And this same Jesus who earlier refused the temptation in the wilderness to turn stones into what? Bread. And who will later take the bread of the Last Supper, give thanks for it, break it up and distribute it to his followers. He takes this little offering, five loaves and two fish, and he has the disciples to just keep coming back. And keep taking food, and they come back, and they take food, and they come back, and they take food, and everyone has enough. 
Actually, it's better than that. Because with Jesus, it's not just enough. It's more than enough. Because in this story, they didn't just eat. That would have been a miracle in and of itself. To have everyone be able to have something to eat, to give them some energy to make the journey home. But it's not that they just ate. They ate and were satisfied. This crowd of people, they were all full. Their hunger was quenched. Thousands of people. And listen, if there were teenagers in the crowd, you know how impossible that is. For their hunger to be completely quenched. And yet, all of them were satisfied. And then beyond that, there were leftovers. How many baskets full of leftovers? Twelve basketfuls of leftovers. I don't even know what they were going to do with the leftovers. There's no to-go containers or doggy bags or people taking handfuls of bread and fish and putting them in their pockets. I don't know because that's not the point. The point is that that small offering was not only in the hands of Jesus enough, it was more than enough. And it reminds me of Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. According to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Jesus isn't just enough. He is more than enough. Not just a full life, but life overflowing. So a few things to think and pray through as we finish our time together. Studying scripture. Are you taking time, first of all, to rest from your labor? Are you carving out space to withdraw and to simply be with Jesus? Secondly, is God inviting you to do something that seems impossible? Is there a great need that you feel drawn to address, even if you have no idea how to do so? Third, have you made the mistake of believing that what you have to offer could never be enough to be used by God. And lastly, what is one thing that you are grateful for, something that you can give thanks for today to begin to practice that act of gratitude? I'm going to flip through these reflections once more while we have this time of silence. Whatever sort of grabs your heart and your mind, make that a point of prayer and reflection for yourself personally. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you we're going to close that time in just a moment with a word of prayer.
Jesus, today we're thankful that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That you are the same one who looked at those overwhelmed 12 disciples and asked them to do something crazy. And that God, sometimes you ask us to do seemingly impossible things today. Things that not only give you glory, but lead us into a deeper dependence on you and an amazement with you. And we celebrate humbly that you invite us to give whatever we have. And if we don't feel like we have enough, we're probably right. But when we place what we have, our limited abilities and resources into your hands, we still believe and we do so with gratitude that you will be able to multiply the effectiveness for the sake of your kingdom and your glory and the good of those around us in ways that we never thought were possible. For that and more, we are thankful today, Jesus, in your name. Amen.